You're listening to an episode of a Wondery Plus exclusive series. To continue listening, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's 1957 at a television studio in Los Angeles, California. A trim, bespectacled man emerges from behind the curtain and takes a seat on one side of the stage. This is the set of a popular CBS show called I've Got a Secret, and the man is an unusual contestant. The host quickly explains the rules of the game. Now, we're not going to identify this contestant panel because to identify him would be to tip off his secret. We will call him simply Dr. X. The way the game works is like a version of 20 questions. A panel of celebrities will ask the contestant a series of questions, and at the end, they'll try to guess his secret identity. Now, Doctor, if you will whisper your secret to me, we will show it at the same time to the folks out there. The secret is revealed on a screen behind the panel. And the celebrity panelists start their questions. Is there any object connected with this secret then, Dr. X? Uh, well, uh, yes, I think you, I, I'm quite sure there's an object. Do doctors use this object? Uh, yes, it's been used in surgery. Is this some kind of a machine that might be painful when it's used? A small, almost imperceptible smirk emerges on the contestant's face. Uh, yeah, sometimes it's most painful. Would this remotely or in any way be connected with psychiatric cases? Uh, um, well, no, not especially. The host chimes in with a quick joke. In, in very rare interest, instances, it's been known to cause a few, but that really isn't the, it really isn't the purpose of it. So let's say the game no. continues, okay. but the panel comes no closer to identifying the contestant. So after a few minutes, the host reveals the secret identity of Dr. X. This is the famous Dr. Philo T. Farnsworth who invented electronic television. The audience cheers, but Farnsworth bristles slightly at being called famous, especially after stumping the panel, who never came close to identifying him or his invention. Farnsworth had always dreamed of becoming an inventor in the same league as his heroes, Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison. And he had indeed achieved something that warranted that level of recognition. But things hadn't worked out that way for Farnsworth. Sure, he'd been working on television for over 30 years, and he was the technical director of his own electronics company. But Farnsworth was the furthest thing from a household name, and his company was on the verge of financial collapse. Dr. Farnsworth, we could stand here for, sit here for many, many hours and talk. Most fascinating man I've met in many a long year. But unfortunately, television being what it is, it's your baby and we're out of time. The host hands Farnsworth $80 cash and a carton of Winston cigarettes, the prize he gets for winning the game. You're Winston, sir, the money that you won, and I are eternal gratitude. I'd be out of work if it weren't for you. Thank you. And with that, Philo Farnsworth, the man who invented television, exits the stage. It would be his first and only televised appearance.
From Wondery, this is American Innovations, and I'm Stephen Johnson. The invention of the electronic television was uniquely complicated for its time. So complicated, in fact, that the prevailing narrative is that it couldn't have been invented by a single person, let alone Philo Farnsworth. After all, some of the most brilliant minds in the world spent the first quarter of the 20th century working on television systems, and some even managed to transmit images. But none of those systems were ever able to deliver the quality of images they'd need to be commercially viable. None except Philo Farnsworth, a farm boy from Utah, who got the idea for television when he was 14 years old. While his better educated and better funded contemporaries were building mechanical systems out of discs and rotating mirrors and vibrating mirrors, Farnsworth had the idea to make the system entirely electronic. He called his invention the image dissector. And it wouldn't just prove to be a better solution than those mechanical televisions. It would lead to the creation of CRT TVs, cathode ray tube televisions. Before TVs shifted to high definition with plasma screens in the early 2000s, practically all consumer televisions were CRT. And it was the work of Philo Farnsworth that made this possible. And yet, his contributions have been largely unheralded. In this series, we will examine Farnsworth's journey to create the electronic television and the corporate struggle that robbed him of his place in history. This is Episode 1, The Picture Radio. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. It's a crisp May morning in Rigby, Idaho, 1919. And 13-year-old Philo Farnsworth is rushing to finish his chores. He hurries around the family's farmhouse, feeding the pigs, milking the cows, gathering wood for the stove, and then pokes his head in the window, where his mom is playing with the baby. I, I just finished my chores. May I go up to my room and read my magazines now? Did you milk the cows? Uh-huh. And feed the pigs? Yes. Then I guess you're good to go. Philo dashes around the corner and up the stairs to his attic bedroom, where he throws himself onto the bed and settles into the latest issue of Science and Invention his favorite magazine. Philo loves reading about the new machines and ideas that scientists always seem to be churning out. He devours articles about phonographs and radios and this whole theory of relativity thing. 
It's been a little more than a year since the Farnsworth family moved to the farm in Rigby, their first home with electricity. And already, Philo has become obsessed with devising new applications for the family generator. Philo kicks his feet up and flips to the page where he left off last night to this article titled, Pictures That Fly Through the Air. The article talks about this machine that works something like a radio, only it sends pictures instead of just sounds. They're calling it television, after the Greek word for long distance. According to the article, scientists are racing to invent this television, but so far, none of them have actually gotten it to work. As Philo reads on, he seems to understand why. For one, all of the devices described in the magazine were mechanical. They'd used whirling disks and mirrors, but nothing that seemed capable of whirling fast enough for a picture radio. Sure, you might be able to transmit static images with these kinds of mechanical televisions, but in order to power anything even comparable to what radio provided with audio, you'd need... Philo, what did you do to the laundry? Philo tumbles out of bed and bounds down the staircase to the kitchen, where he finds his mother staring at the washing machine, bewildered. Philo, what is this? Isn't it great? I attached a motor to our old hand crank washing machine. Now instead of standing there for hours, pushing and pulling on the lever, the pulleys can do it for us. I guess it leaves you with more time to read your magazines, doesn't it? Philo chuckles and shrugs. He hadn't yet declared that he dreamed of being a famous inventor, but he enjoyed tinkering with the broken motors and reels of wire and old tools he found around the farm. The electric generator broke down a lot and repairs were costly. Each time the repairman came, Philo bombarded him with questions. After yet another breakdown, Philo decided to fix the machine himself. He took it apart, cleaned it, put it back together, and pressed the on button. It worked. A week later, when Philo's father returned to discover the generator working without issue, he looked at his 12-year-old son with a mixture of shock and awe. Philo, how did you do that? I took it apart and cleaned it. I also used a different kind of oil. You are truly the family's electrical engineer, aren't you? That was one year ago. Now, Philo sees his mother look at him, mirroring that same expression. Half bewildered, half bemused, but totally humbled by their son's seemingly God-given genius. My boy, you really are the family's inquisitive little inventor, aren't you? Well, you still need to graze the cows and plow the field tomorrow. At least until you figure out how to invent that away, too. But Philo wouldn't invent away his plowing responsibilities. Instead, they would lead him to the breakthrough that would define his career. It's spring 1921, and 14-year-old Philo is out in the family fields, finishing his plowing for the day. He stands on a harrow, guiding his two horses as they pull the tilling tool in straight lines from one edge of the field to the other. It's a repetitive, monotonous task, one that allows his mind to wander in the thrall of the technical puzzles he reads about. And today, he's been puzzling over the television. The sun is on its way down. Time for Philo to guide the horses back to the stable. But before he does, he stops to look back on his work, on the rows and rows of parallel lines in the dirt. He notices the way the sun's gloaming light catches each row. And suddenly, an idea comes into his mind, fully formed. Beams of light. Yeah, <laughs> yes, beams of light. Philo hurries to settle the horses into the barn and then dashes inside the house to share the good news with his father over dinner. Dad, I've got it. I, I know how television works. Oh, you do, do you? Yes, yes, beams of light. You just need to break the image down into individual points of light projected all at once. If you could do that, you could send the images instantaneously, and the sequence could move fluidly. Uh, wait, 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 you lost me. Like, when you hit that switch, light goes on in the lamp, right? 
I don't get it, Philo. Light bulbs for visual information? No, no, no. Well, kind of. You'd have a camera. You, you know how cameras reflect with a lens onto a glass plate, right? Uh, yes. This would take that reflection and dissect it. Reflect it and dissect it, huh? What is dissecting what now? Well, you'd need an image dissector, I guess you'd call it, to dissect the image into dots that can project out along electron beams and then transmit those lines of light to a receiver, just as fast as electricity going up that lamp. And that's how television works, huh? It doesn't occur to his father that Philo isn't describing how television already works. He's describing how it could work. In his mind, his teenage son is just describing another article he read. It's a lonely experience for Philo, speaking in a language that no one else seems to understand. But the feeling wouldn't last long. In just six months, Philo would meet someone who could help guide his idea. Justin Tolman, the chemistry teacher at Rigby High School. It's late August, 1921. Philo's first day as a freshman at Rigby High School. He doesn't have science until fifth period, but he's already waiting outside the class of Mr. Tolman, the science teacher. Uh, excuse me, you're Mr. Tolman. Uh, you teach chemistry? Among other classes, yes. Yeah, I, I have you for basic science later today, but I... Ah, you're a freshman. I didn't recognize you. What's your name? Philo. F- Philo Farnsworth. I-, I was wondering if I could take chemistry instead, though. In the years he's been teaching, Justin Tolman has never heard this one before. Well, Philo, you need to pass basic science before you can take chemistry. That's just how it works. Yeah, but couldn't I just sit in, though? I don't understand. Wouldn't you be missing another class? Yeah, okay. Well, I just wondered if I could ask you some questions about cathode ray tubes and their ability to transmit electrons. Tolman is taken aback. Uh, well, what is your question? Can cathode ray tubes transmit electrons that are negatively charged? Hmm, I suppose so. Okay, great. I thought so. And a cathode, that essentially does the opposite. It makes invisible electrons glow, right? That sounds right. Okay, okay. Thank you, Mr. Tolman. As Tolman watches Philo leave the classroom, he feels the same way most people feel when meeting the young man, a mixture of confusion and intrigue. But unlike most people, Tolman doesn't simply shrug him off. In fact, the next day, Tolman asks Philo to stay after class. All right, everyone, thank you. Uh, Mr. Farnsworth, would you mind staying after for a moment, please? What is this? The homework assignment, sir. The assignment was a one-page essay about the textbook's introduction. You did all of the assignments for the remainder of the class. Yes, sir. I see. So you're a reader, are you? Yes, sir. All right, Mr. Philo Farnsworth, I'll make you a deal. I still can't let you into the chemistry class. Those are just the rules. But I can give you some extra reading. I know some of the professors at BYU. I can get my hands on some college texts for you. And for an hour after school each day, while I'm cleaning up, you can come by for tutoring. Oh, that'd be swell. Can I show you something I've been working on? Besides the entire textbook? Yeah, yeah, it's an idea I have. Basically, you, you, you trap light in an empty jar, like a, like a pickle jar. Only it would have to be a, a vacuum-sealed jar. And inside of that jar, the, the vacuum jar, there's a special surface, and it reacts to light. It reacts by converting the light into electrical impulses, electrons. And we scan the impulses, you know, the electrons. The image will be composed of many dots that are individually beamed out instantaneously in a, in a batch, like plowing a field with a horse-drawn plow. Like plowing a field? What? Right, right, but the dirt is negatively charged photoelectrons. I'm saying this is a way to transmit pictures electronically. Here, l- l- let me show you. Farnsworth rips out a page of notebook paper and draws a quick sketch. And what am I looking at, Mr. Farnsworth? 
I call it the image dissector. I see. May I keep this? Sure thing, Mr. Tolman. Anyway, I should head home. I'll see you in class tomorrow. Tolman looks at the drawing again. Even with Philo's long-winded explanation, he still doesn't understand exactly what he's looking at. Nevertheless, he slides it inside a special envelope where he keeps good work from his previous students. Something tells him that this crude little diagram is important, but it would be years before he realizes just how important it is. American Innovations is supported by ZipRecruiter. It's a new year, the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. Thankfully, heading over to ZipRecruiter.com AI makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, they analyze each one and spotlight the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, Listeners of American Innovations can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash AI. That's ziprecruiter.com slash AI. One more time, ziprecruiter.com slash AI. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Every year we make resolutions. Eat healthier, get to the gym, get your finances in order. This year, make a resolution you can actually keep earn more money. The Wealthfront cash account makes it effortless to earn more on your savings, so you can be proud of your financial decisions in 2020. With the Wealthfront cash account, you earn more interest on your money. They have one of the highest interest rates in the market at 1.82% annual percentage yield. That's 18 times more interest than the national average of 0.1%, according to Bankrate.com. It's easy and fast to get started. It only takes $1 and a few minutes to open an account. You can even do it right from your phone. No paperwork required. Right now, you can sign up for the Wealthfront cash account in less than five minutes by visiting Wealthfront.com AI. That's Wealthfront.com AI to start earning 18 times more interest on all your savings. One more time, Wealthfront.com AI. Wealthfront is not a bank. Cash account is offered by Wealthfront Brokerage, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Wealthfront conveys funds to partner banks who accept and maintain deposits, provide the interest rate, and provide FDIC insurance. The APY is subject to change. It's January 1924 in Provo, Utah. The Farnsworth family stands at the side of an open grave. All around them, the ground is frozen and the dirt of the cemetery has hardened to match the headstones. Philo feels the wind bite at his face. Philo is only 18 years old, but he feels much older because today he's having to bury his father. Philo puts his arm around his mother. He shares a glance with his sister, Agnes. Philo is the oldest of the five children. He's six months shy of graduating high school and he'd planned to go to college, somewhere with proper lab equipment where he can keep working on the television. But now he knows his plans are going to have to change. He'll be responsible for providing for the family. So in June 1924, Philo applies to the United States Naval Academy in Maryland. The Academy offers the two things he needs, a steady source of income for his family and an opportunity to continue working on his television idea. 
He earns the second highest score in the nation on the recruiting test and moves to Maryland. But soon after joining, Philo learns that any patent he developed would automatically be owned by the government if he stays in the military. To Philo, the idea of not owning his work makes him feel almost physically ill. He remembers the conversations with his dad from when he was a little boy, citing the great scientific inventors by name. He likes to imagine that one day, the name Philo Farnsworth might inspire a young dreamer, the way names like Alexander Graham Bell inspired him. Only a few months after joining the Naval Academy, Philo obtains an honorable discharge under the provision in which the eldest child from a fatherless family could be excused from military service to provide for his family. In September 1924, Philo returns to Provo, Utah and enrolls at Brigham Young University. Just as he did in high school, Philo attends the advanced science classes, despite not actually being enrolled in the courses. Philo also makes himself a regular at the university's research labs. When Philo isn't attending school, he's working various part-time jobs, but his sister tells him it isn't enough. After talking things through, the Farnsworth family decides to sell the house and downsize to something more affordable, a duplex in Provo. The family settles in, and the Farnsworth clan becomes fast friends with their new neighbors, the Gardeners. Philo takes a particular liking to the boy next door, Cliff Gardner, who shares his fascination with electronic communication, and Cliff's sister, Alma, who everybody calls Pem. Pem is two years younger than Cliff, but they have a close relationship, and she often joins the boys' discussions about electronics. She doesn't always understand some of the details, but she likes to encourage their big dreams. In the spring, needing more income than he's making in his part-time jobs, Philo leaves BYU without completing his degree. Thankfully, he was able to earn a separate certification as a junior radio technician. He wastes no time in putting his new qualifications to use and opens a radio repair business with Cliff. But after only a few months of repairing radios with Cliff in their small shop, Philo's feeling frustrated. He goes for a walk along the streets of Salt Lake at night with Cliff's sister, Pam. The couple has been going steady together for a few months now, but already Philo feels that Pam understands him in a way that nobody else does. And she can easily see that something is troubling him. What's wrong, Philo? I don't know, Pam. Sometimes I just feel like I'm a thousand years old. I know losing your father was hard, but you've come so far. You and Cliff have a great thing going. I know, I, I, I like working with radio just fine, Pam, but I still dream of television. I told you about that idea, the, the image dissector with the... Yeah, the beams of light, the charged electrons and the experimental tubes, I remember. You know, the Lord set you on a path, but sometimes paths take twists and turns along the way. You have a real gift, and you know that God wouldn't have given you that gift if he wanted you to just give up on it. But how? I gotta work to make money just to survive, plus I gotta be taking care of my mom and my family. I don't have the time or the resources or any of the things we'd actually need to make it real. Good Lord works in mysterious ways. I know, and this is the path he set before me. I just wish I knew the way forward. But sometimes I think I do know. I'm, I'm not a real inventor. You won't be with that attitude. You need to have faith in your idea before you can convert others. I remember when I first saw you, when I knew I had to get Agnes to set us up, I saw you working as a canvasser for the church. I already knew you were the big fancy college man going to BYU, but I, don't, I remember being most impressed by your dedication to your faith. You can raise money for charity. Couldn't you do that for your dreams? Hemi, I think you may be the smartest person I have ever met. Thank you. In the weeks following Pem's pep talk, Philo makes an effort to reinvent himself. He's determined to present himself as a professional adult, even though he's still a teenager. 
He buys a new blue suit, he grows a mustache, and starts going by Phil instead of Philo. He also begins reaching out to people at church, the folks he'd worked with as a canvasser, looking for opportunities to pitch investors. Through the grapevine, he learns about a pair of businessmen who'd raised a large donation and decides to pay them a visit. It's January 1926. Philo enters the office of the Community Chest in Salt Lake City, where he's scheduled to meet with a pair of businessmen from California. Uh, hi, I'm here to meet Mr. Everson and Mr. Gorell. Yes, yes, how do you do? I'm Everson, he's Gorell. But you can call me George, no need to stand on ceremony and the like, eh, Leslie? Uh, you can call me Mr. Gorell. Farnsworth, is it? Yes, sir, Phil Farnsworth. And you're with which charity is it? No, 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 I, I'm an inventor. I, I, I wrote you a letter. I wrote to you about the image dissector for electronic television. Oh. oh. Ah, yes, yes, yes. We, we'd love to see it. Well, I, I can't show it to you until I build it. And like I said in my letter, it's going to require a lot of work, a, a lab and equipment. I would need at least $20,000. I don't remember reading that part. Hmm. Well, we don't have that kind of money, right, George? We sure don't. Could you do it on three grand? Philo feels his stomach sink. No, that's, that's not possible. Believe me, I, I, I've tried. I am trying. Oh. And honestly, 20 grand is just the start. Most of the parts required for this device also need to be invented. Oh. And then, once we have those, we're still talking about the most basic and bare-bones version of it. Oh. You know, most of the pitches we hear are for farm equipment and the like. And usually they try to give us reasons for us to say yes to them. Well, this would be inventing television. Yeah, that was the part of the letter I liked. Hmm. Phil, are you familiar with Crocker National Bank? We happen to know the founder, William Crocker. He's got more money than he knows what to do with. He'd be perfect for you. Ah, yes, he's, he's always funding various scientific endeavors and such. Have you, have you ever been to California, Phil? No. Well, it's time to pack your suitcase and get yourself a train ticket. One month later, in San Francisco, Philo is in a boardroom, pitching his idea to William Crocker, the deep-pocketed banker. He was scheduled for 30 minutes, but the meeting lasts two hours. At the end, Crocker gives his answer. All right, Mr. Farnsworth, I'll raise your 20 grand, but in return, I need to see a working prototype in six months. Six months? That's, that's not possible. The parts, I told you, they don't exist yet. I'm the one writing the check. I say what's possible. Six months. And so it was decided. Philo would set up a lab in the San Francisco Bay Area with a small staff working full-time on the image dissector, and they would deliver in six months. Back in Salt Lake City, Philo steps off the train with a triumphant smile on his face. Though he had barely touched alcohol in his life before, he couldn't resist drinking from Crocker's celebratory gift on the ride home. He has returned victorious, and he wants to celebrate. It's sometime after midnight on February 25th, 1926, Pem's birthday. She's turning 18, and Philo is going to march straight over to her house and propose. Philo tosses stones at Pem's bedroom window. He's a little tipsy. Pem, 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 Pemmy, hey, Pem, are you awake? It's me, your Prince Regent, at your service. Philo, what, what time is it? I don't know, but it's definitely your birthday. Happy birthday, Pemmy. Thanks, but, oh, guess what? I did it, Pemmy, we got the money. Oh my goodness, love, I, I'm so proud. Philo, let, let's, let's not do this here. Come inside, will you please? Philo rushes inside to Pem's room. He presents Pem with a gift. Sheet music for their favorite song, Always. It's accompanied by a note that reads, 
Irving Berlin could say it so much better than me. I couldn't have done it without you. Listen, Pammy, for the first time since Pa died, I feel like I have a future in front of me. And I want you to be a part of it. In fact, there's something I want to ask you. Philo drops to one knee and takes out a diamond ring as he pops the question. Could you be ready to marry in three days? How about three months? Philo and Pem get married three months later. And the very next day, they board the train to California to make their dreams come true. Simply Safe Home Security is like getting commercial grade enterprise level security, but for your own home. I mean, think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your home. Entry, motion, and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, and carbon monoxide poisoning. And it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. And it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. I trust Simply Safe to protect my home. If you're interested in trying it out for yourself and in supporting our show, go to simplysafe.com/ai today to get free shipping on your order, plus a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com/ai to save on home security today. simplysafe.com/ai It's June 26 in San Francisco, California. A plain gray building sits on the edge of the bay spackled in salt and seagull droppings at 202 Green Street. A second-story industrial lot is where Philo has set up his base of operations. His team consists of his wife, Pem, his sister, Agnes, and his brother-in-law, Cliff Gardner. They call their new home the Green Street Laboratory, although the facility looks more like a handyman's garage. It's here that they'll attempt to build the image dissector Philo's been dreaming about for nearly a decade. Pem and Cliff both spend a lot of their time glass-blowing, trying to create tubes that can withstand an extraordinary amount of heat and light pressure. If Philo had recruited professional glassblowers for this endeavor, he would have been told what he was asking for was impossible. Thankfully, neither Pem nor Cliff knew it was impossible, so they kept trying. But today is not a day for excuses. Today is a day for results. Today is the day the investors, Everson and Gorell, have come to inspect the fruits of their investment. Gentlemen, thank you for coming. Our pleasure. Never passed on an excuse to come to San Francisco. Philo guides them inside to see the lab. Even after being tidied up, the place still looks like a junkyard sneezed all over it. Hmm, so which one of these is your picture machine? Philo indicates a finished prototype, the delicate glass tube connected to a larger mechanical apparatus, wires sprouting in all directions. Right here, the world's first image dissector. Oh, it's smaller than I imagined. That's right, compact and efficient. We hope to streamline the design even further in future iterations. As long as it makes money, right, George? That's right. Oh, we'll make more than money. We're going to make history. Pem, if you just get the lights. Gentlemen, get ready to witness... a power failure. While the men panic and begin to make excuses, Pem diligently makes a record in her journal. The entry consists of three words. Bang, pop, sizzle. The demonstration is a failure. But Philo is still convinced his idea will work. 
It's simply a matter of execution. A better seal on the tube, better construction of the components, an adjusted measurement or two, or three. No matter how many failures, how many humiliations, how many all-nighters they have to pull, they are going to figure it out. In fact, Philo is so certain of his ability to produce a working model of the image dissector, he submits an application for a patent, titled simply, Television System. That word still captures Philo's imagination, like it did when he was a young boy, poring over magazines in the attic. Television, a way of seeing things from afar. I'm so proud, Philo. With the countless hours he's invested dreaming about this, Philo can't help but feel a deeply personal connection to his work. This is what he's been doing his whole life, seeing things from afar, looking ahead, chasing a vision on a distant horizon. And one day, he knows that vision will extend beyond the horizon, carried on wires and transmitters and electromagnetic waves, wrapping around the globe and back a hundred times over. One day, if he can just keep going. It's September 7th, 1927, and Philo is prepping for another visit from his investors. A little more than a year has passed since the demonstration that caused a blackout, but he's worked out the kinks, and now he's certain, this time, it's going to work. It has to, because today, Philo is presenting the image dissector to the most important audience yet, all of his investors, Everson, Gorel, and the biggest contributor, William Henry Crocker. Mr. Crocker, a pleasure to see you again. Yes, well, my friends tell me your last demonstration was somewhat inauspicious. I assure you, we've perfected our process. Mr. Crocker, uh, th this is my wife, Pam, and this is Cliff Gardner. He's the one who shaped our cathode ray tube. See, this shape is incredibly unusual here. Some of the best blowers in the city said it couldn't be done. You've been in the trade a long time, have you, Cliff? Uh, no, actually. Philo and I repaired radios in Salt Lake City. Uh, and I, I used to be a lumberjack before that. But I'm a fast learner. Well, then, let's see what this thing can do, shall we? Philo leads them through the lab to the device. Crocker studies the tube with a vaguely interested expression. This is the machine. That's right. The image dissector. May I see how it works? Um, yes, of course. I if you would direct your attention to the screen right over here, we'll, we'll just begin in a moment. Philo signals for Pem to switch on the machine. The generator warms and whirs to life, shining light through the image dissector and casting a picture on the projector screen. It's working. Yes, there. Do you see? Crocker and the others stare at the screen in confusion. It's a line. Not just a line, it's television. It's a line. And a fuzzy line at that. Philo can feel his stomach drop. He stares at the line on the screen, perplexed. Philo and Pam rush over to the camera. Something isn't right. The image should be clearer. Why isn't it? As Philo inspects his device, Pam notices something else. Something he isn't seeing. Beside the camera, a cigarette in the ashtray is not fully extinguished, and the trail of smoke is passing in front of the camera. Pem picks up the cigarette and stamps it out. In the other room, the image changes, and suddenly, so does Crocker's expression. Oh, hold on now, what, what, what just happened? Pem hollers from the other room. Philo, it was the smoke. Pem adjusts the slide of glass with the line on it, and the investors watch it move correspondingly on the screen. Philo's entire body fills with the electricity of excitement. For those standing in the room, there's no question. The machine works, and it works beautifully. Still, one question remains. So, Farnsworth, when are we going to start seeing some money on this contraption? Philo removes the glass slide with a line on it from the lens. He takes a paintbrush from the desk, squiggles on the frame, and returns it into the camera. It shows a dollar sign. There you go, gentlemen. That is television. 
Crocker's mood shifts dramatically. My God, it's, it's fantastic. If it can do that, imagine what else. Tomorrow we'll be showing photographs or baseball games. They'll be using this device to watch the ball games in Yankee Stadium in their living rooms in San Francisco. Well, we're not quite there yet, sir, but, but yes, that is the idea. I would say you and your family have earned another 10000 in funds. Keep going. The mood is jubilant. As the investors talk amongst themselves, Farnsworth pulls Pam aside. Thank you, Pammy. You're the most brilliant person I know. They kiss and they dance. Tonight is for celebration. But tomorrow, it's back to work. Over the next year, the Green Street Lab crew works on refining their equipment and perfecting their process, all within the close quarters of their lab. And then, after hundreds of successful test runs with the image dissector, Philo decides the time has come to show the world what they've been up to. On September 3rd, 1928, he invites a reporter and a photographer from the San Francisco Chronicle into the lab to document the test. The demonstration goes off without a hitch, just like they practiced. And this time, Philo is able to show more than just one line. He shows a variety of shapes and photographs, and at one point, Pem accidentally steps in front of the camera, briefly showing her face on screen. Pemmy, you're the first human to ever appear on television. My eyes were closed. Not the most flattering portrait, Philo. The next day, the San Francisco Chronicle prints the headline, Young Genius Invents Revolutionary New Blacklight Machine, over a photo of Philo and his curious new device. The Green Street Lab team is overwhelmed with joy and optimism about the future. They've made a working television, and now the whole world knows it. Surely, this will secure the financial support they need to finish their project and ensure Philo's rightful place in the pantheon of inventors. Surely, the biggest battle for television is now behind them. Only, it isn't. Because, on the other side of the country, in the offices of RCA in New York City, a new battle was just beginning. In a large office in a Manhattan skyscraper, an executive named David Sarnoff is reading the San Francisco Chronicle's article about Philo's invention. Across from him sits Vladimir Zorkin, an engineer who, until this moment, had been considered the leading researcher in the development of television. Sarnoff takes a drag on his cigar and spits the smoke spitefully across his desk. Why? Why what? Why am I reading about this? Why am I not instead seeing it demonstrated to me personally? I thought this was what you were for. We, we are working, but it's... But nothing. You need more money, more time, I'm sure. And yet this Farnsworth character has figured out how to transmit images without a proper lab or a college education or any real funding to speak of. So tell me, Mr. Zorkin, what's your excuse? Mr. Sarnoff, please. Sarnoff was in no mood for excuses. He had worked his way up from nothing, from less than nothing, to become the president of RCA, the most powerful telecommunications business in the world. Sarnoff knew the future of his industry was in television, and he'd been spending aggressively buying every patent he could find related to television to make sure he owned a piece of that future. Zhorkin's work was supposed to be the most advanced in the world, and Sarnoff had paid handsomely for it. And yet, Zhorkin had failed to deliver anything close to the kind of results he was now reading about in the San Francisco Chronicle. Sarnoff puts down his paper and glares across the table at Zhorkin. Whatever this Farnsworth is doing differently, I want to know. And you're going to find out for me. Television is the future, and it will be RCA leading the way, no matter what. On the next episode, Sarnoff will resort to drastic measures to recapture the future of television. Thank you. 
If you like our series, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, every major listening app, as well as at Wondery.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you might have missed. And a quick note about those historical recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said, so those scenes are dramatizations. But they're based on real historical research. You can find some of the books and articles we found useful in the episode notes. American Innovations is hosted by me, Stephen Johnson. For more information on my books about science and innovation, including how we got to now, you can visit my website, stephenberlinjohnson.com. This episode was written by Grant Pardee and edited by Liza Veal. Sound design on this episode is by Landon Lipinski. American Innovations is produced by Emma Cordland. Executive produced by Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the Wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus and the wondery app or on apple podcasts